Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. One of the best parts about pathology is that there are so many subspecialties within it, and you can combine these things together to suit your interests. My guest today is Dr. Sarah Copeland. Dr. Copeland primarily works in ophthalmic pathology, but she also has interest in molecular pathology and hematopathology. Today, we're going to talk about some of her projects, including the Liverpool Ocular Oncology Research Group, the Cancer Genome Atlas, the Royal College of Pathologists Book Club, and a lot more. Here's Dr. Sarah Copeland. You're originally from Australia. And, right. uh, yeah. Okay, and you, and you did your initial medical training there. Yes, that's right. I, um, I was actually born in, in Sydney, Australia. And um, my father, who was a medical oncologist, he moved when I was only six months old to Canberra, um, our national capital. And um, so I did my uh, schooling in Canberra. And then I went to medical school in Sydney because at that stage in Canberra, there was no um, medical curriculum at the Australian National University, which is the big university in Canberra. So, yes, that's where I did my medical undergraduate degree. Now, I'm curious, then, was it your father that inspired you to, to go to medical school? I guess so, um, because my my father was, yes, as, a, as I said, a medical oncologist. He and my mother was a, was a nurse. And so it was very usual for me to come home from school and over dinner there would be sort of medical speak. I always had a fascination with, and still do, with biology and, um, I guess, molecular mechanisms within the normal cell. Uh, but uh, obviously, in medicine, we're de dealing with disease cells. And um, and so I just, yes, had this interest in, in medicine. And yes, probably as a result of him and uh some of the stories he told, I found it interesting and wanted to do medicine as a, as a career. Were you interested in going into pathology right away, or did you have some other uh, specialties in mind? So I actually thought I would follow in his footsteps in terms of doing medical oncology and becoming a physician. However, when I finished my degree, it, it was, there was a bit of a bottleneck at that time in Australia in uh, in the various subspecialties as a physician. And uh, so I started thinking of, you know, options outside that box. And uh, as, as a junior doctor in Australia at that time, you rotate through various specialties. So you get exposure to accident emergency, intensive care, and uh, surgical specialties. And I landed on a microvascular team. Uh, and I found that this fine surgery very interesting. So I actually started thinking of becoming an ophthalmologist. <laughs> and so this is where there's a bit of a zigzag in my career. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I was seriously thinking of doing ophthalmology. And then, um, I, then I met my future husband, um, uh, which led me leaving Australia and moving to Germany. And at that, at that time, I couldn't speak German, and so I couldn't practice as a doctor. So I did some research, and, uh, and this research turned into a PhD. And this was all 
all about corneal transplantation. And so I was doing this fine surgery. I was doing the corneal transplantation in rats. And I was looking at various drugs which would delay the corneal rejection reaction. And I was working up all of these all of these experiments by myself. I was doing the uh, doing the surgery, doing the enucleations, and then I was doing the embedding of the eyes and uh, the histology and immunohistology of those eyes and um, recording the uh, the infiltrates. You did that all yourself? Yeah, I did that all myself. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Learning by doing. Um, and, and I think through that whole process, I realized what interests me most is the, the pathology and uh, the underlying pathology. And so then I, uh, I thought, actually, I really like pathology. And so then I um, explored the option of doing pathology. And at the end of these, I guess, three to four years, I had a bit of time and I approached um, – Professor William Lee, who was based in Glasgow, uh, and I asked whether he, he would take me on as, a, as like an observer. And uh, so I think that then really made it concrete during those three to four months that I uh, looked at particularly eye pathology with him, human eye pathology. And yes, I, so at that time point, I decided, okay, no, I don't want to do ophthalmology, um, even though a position was there <laughs> in the making for me. I did. I said, uh, no, I really want to do pathology, and uh, and so I then commenced a six to seven year <laughs> training in uh, general and then specialised pathology. Do you ever wonder, like, how would your life be different if you had stuck with ophthalmology? Yes, I, I, I guess I do. Probably a completely different path. I, um, yeah. But I think I still would have been, like I am now, a clinical academic. So right. I, I probably would be a, an ophthalmologist who would be doing research on the side in, in whatever area that I may have subspecialized as an ophthalmologist. Ophthalmic pathology is really the most part of what you do these days, you know, and, and I want to get into a, a lot of that. But before that, there's a couple of other subspecialties that, that I found interesting and I wanted to talk about a little bit. So one is hematopathology. How did you become interested in that area? Okay. So when I did my specialty training in pathology in Berlin, it was a, uh, with the department of Professor Harold Stein who is quite famous for hematopathology, uh, particularly for Hodgkin's uh, lymphoma. So he had a super regional uh, referral center for hematopathology as a as sort of like a subcomponent of his general pathology department. During that time of my training, I was exposed to a, a huge number of hematopathology specimens. Um, so, you know, during the training, you would do the, all the usual in terms of autopsies and the, you know, the general pathology training of all, uh, all organs as you became more senior within the department. And if you had a particular interest in hematopathology, then you were, you were allowed to 
co-report on the hematopathology. So I, I uh, did that and I saw, saw a lot of uh, bone marrow trophines, lymph nodes, lymphoid infiltrates in a variety of different organs. And I also combined my interest with um, ophthalmology. So I saw a lot of ocular nexal lymphomas and intraocular lymphomas. And actually, I then went on and did what you can do in Germany, is that you can uh, do a professor thesis. So I'd done, I completed my PhD, and then I entered into the specialty training of pathology. But after I'd completed my specialty exams in, in pathology, I submitted a, a, an additional thesis, which is called a habilitation, uh, which is like a professor thesis. And its focus was on ocular nexal and intraocular lymphomas. And, um, and so, yes, I sort of combined my interests with uh, Professor Stein's interests. And in, in that way, then I developed the expertise in hematopathology. And as part of that, um, I also learned a lot about, um, molecular pathology because there's a lot mm -hmm. of molecular pathology built into hematopathology. And, right. uh, so I learned how to do, for example, clonality analysis. You know, I did the pipetting at the bench <laughs> for the DNA extractions and, you know, did use the primers to produce the amplification products um, to determine whether a lymphoid infiltrate was clonal or polyclonal. And, um, and then also compared the sequences with uh, what was already available in the various libraries at that time. So I, learned how to do that and then in turn uh, realized its usefulness and necessity in in diagnostic work. And and you've combined all of these interests together with ophthalmology and now you're you're back into ophthalmic pathology. In 2005 my husband and I we moved from Berlin to to Liverpool in the UK. You know even though I was reporting general pathology you know, from a range of different organs, um, I guess I came with um, various subspecialties as caps, in uh, feather caps, and uh, they were hematopathology, ophthalmic pathology, and also neoplastic skin pathology. Mm -hmm. And um, this was what the, the pathology department here uh, at the Royal Liverpool University Hospital was looking for. Uh, they needed help with the ophthalmic pathology and also particularly with the hematopathology. And uh, within actually a couple of years, soon after I arrived, um, some of the uh, older hematopathologists retired. And so suddenly I was leading the hematopathology service here, <laughs> which was rather unexpected, but mm -hmm. you know, that's how things happen. I want to talk about the Liverpool Ocular Oncology Research Group. Yeah. You established this group in 2006. So at the time, what was, what was the purpose of starting this group? So when I moved to Liverpool, um, I had a contract, which is, um, I don't know whether there are similar things in the States, where it, I'm 50% diagnostic work um, associated with the NHS. So that's all of the hematopath. Um, mm -hmm ophthalmic path and skin path, but I'm also 50% university 
and so I have two task masters and uh, each expect uh, certain things from you. Uh, on the diagnostic side, yes, okay, the, the number of cases going through with short turnaround times. Uh, on the university side, there was an expectation at the level I was coming in to set up my own independent research group. So it made sense for me, uh, particularly that uh, Liverpool has a super regional um, oculoncology centre here. So there, just for background, there are only three super regional oculoncology centres in England, and they're based in Liverpool, Sheffield and London. And so any patient who is suspected of having any eye cancer, be it in the conjunctiva, skin, orbit, or intraocular is sent to one of these super-regional oculoncology centers because uh, they, they're they rare, tend to be rare tumors, and it's thought it, it's best for the patients if they're treated in expert centers. So I thought the best tactic would be to set up a, a research group which collaborates closely with the oculoncology center and the lead at that time was a, a certain Professor uh, Bertolt D'Amato. And Bertolt had incredible foresight in that he thought he set up a database in terms of um, all of the clinical data with respect to all the details about the patients uh, and then also details about the location, size of tumours, etc. And then he also organised the ethics and the consent forms for the patients to uh, to sign if they're in agreement uh, for the use of excess or surplus diagnostic tissue for research. So I was quite lucky in, when I moved here that he'd started that process. So together we set up this oculoncology research group. <laughs> it was essentially just the two of us. And uh, for the, a whole year, 2006, I can remember writing numerous grant applications and uh, finally I got I was successful in two and I was able to get a PhD student and uh, a postdoc position and uh, with those two members then we were able to step by step expand and I co-opted another postdoc position and uh, Dr. Helen Calloway who is uh, who is still with me she's uh, the second postdoc who arrived she is an expert in uh, ethics with respect to the use of human tissue. And so we broadened this uh, tissue collection and made it an official oculoncology biobank. And uh, so now we have really a very precious resource consisting of the fresh primary and metastatic tissue, the associated bloods of the patients, and all the corresponding paraffin blocks and also all of the clinical data. Once you have such a, a precious resource, then you can really start formulating questions, research questions, which are of relevance to the clinic. And uh, I guess this is what we've, we've done over, over the years. As a result of that, we've also been able to participate in a number of national and international studies. Now, when you were first starting this group, how was it accepted, like, by the sort of the, I guess, the clinical community? Like, 
did people see the need for this and were they supportive of what you were trying to do? Definitely on the side of the ocular oncologist. Prof. D'Amato uh, was extremely supportive and, uh, and still is. He, he works in the meantime in London. And the patients themselves, so through, um, I guess, through Virtual, I was introduced to Ocumel UK, which is the patient support group here. And I there's the, the American equivalent of that is Cure, Cure OM. We actually had Sarah Salik, who established QOM. We invited her here to Liverpool and we had a conference together with Ocumel UK. This is such a rare tumour and uh, the, the patients realise that, you know, uh, it's only through the collation of such, uh, such a tissue bank together with all of the uh, associated data and the national, international collaboration that, and, you know, any advances are going to be made on it. Uh, so I, in general, I got a, a lot of support. The, the only thing is, you know, it must be said that there's not much money in, in biobanking, as in there's not much money out there to set up a biobank. You know, there's research money to support projects, but um, just to build an uh, and the infrastructure of a biobank, there are only, there are only very few pots uh, available. So we we did have to be uh, quite innovative <laughs> with our resources in how we could run it and continue to run it. A lot of the work that you've done has been in with uveal melanoma. Yeah. And, and now this is interesting because when I when I think when most people think of melanoma, they think of you know skin cancer, yeah. cutaneous melanoma. Yeah. Do you feel that uh, uveal melanoma should get more attention? Um, definitely. But I, I think, fortunately, over the last, say, five to ten years, a lot of clinicians and researchers have realized the difference, the difference in um, between the differing melanomas. <laughs> They're not being all lumped into the same um, sort of pot. Mm-hmm. And, so I think a mistake was made probably 10, 15 years ago when it came to treating uh, metastatic uveal melanoma. You know, the clinicians would just try what would work in skin melanoma and just see if it worked in uveal melanoma by chance, hoping it would. But over the years, you know, um, it's become clear, particularly through various genetic analyses, that, you know, BRAF mutations are exceptionally rare in more particularly choroidal melanomas. And uh, so there's no point in, A, doing a BRAF mutation analysis on a metastatic uveal melanoma or applying BRAF inhibitors to metastatic uveal melanoma patients because you're building up hope, which really isn't, isn't there. I think with these large international collaborative studies such as the TCJ and also other studies, it's become clear that uveal melanoma is distinctive from cutaneous melanomas. It has a distinctive genetic profile and distinctive biology, and therefore it is a distinct entity in a way, and uh, it has actually been 
designated as such by the European Medicines Agency at the beginning of this year as an orphan disease, and and therefore it requires distinct therapies, and that uh, you know we can't just apply what's used in uh, skin melanoma and hope that it works because that strategy just doesn't work. And there are a few uh, videos on YouTube actually of you giving talks on uveal melanoma and a few of them you're 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 essentially saying what what it is and how it's different from cutaneous melanoma this work then that you're doing and uh, is this how you got involved in with the the cancer genome atlas uveal melanoma study yes um so the tcga i mean i, th- I think it was it's amazing what was undertaken and the amount of investments that went into the tcga and the, uh, indeed, actually, you know, the amount of data that was generated and is still being generated because uh, there's still a lot of data mining is going on. You probably know that there were 33 cancer types which were examined in the TCGA. And the 33rd tumor was uveal melanoma. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Yes. We were uh, very lucky to be included and it just came about because they still had some money left over. <laughs> and um, I don't quite know, well, I don't quite understand how it happened, but I think uh, the American collaborators knew of people running the project and they, they asked whether it would be possible and uh, they approached European partners who they'd been working with, including ourselves, and um, so there were uh, partners from France, the Netherlands, just trying to remember where else, obviously the UK, but um, I think there's, there was another country from Europe involved. And um, so 80 primary melanomas were examined. They, understandably, the TCGA were very particular in terms of the quality of the material, the quality of the, uh, you know, both the frozen and the formula fixed um, material that was, which was analysed. Uh, they also were particular in terms of wanting to know all of the clinical details that, that had to be complete. So we actually provided 20 cases uh, to the 80, um, and that came from the Liverpool Oncology Biobank. I think, um, I don't know, three or four were, were rejected for that uh, uh, just because they understandably had to be very strict in, in the, the cases that they accepted. It was a very long <laughs> process, uh, uploading um, images um, to the to the database and all of the clinical information, which is obviously pseudo-anonymized. And we had regular meetings, and uh, particularly when the data came through and you know, we were analyzing the data, and then I, I was responsible as part of this, like a sub-project of this study. I was part of a panel of five eye pathologists, and we had to go through all of the 80 cases, uh, which had all been scanned in. And we had to look at those slides and agree in terms of the, the cellular morphology, the mitotic count, uh, uh, were there inflammatory infiltrates within the tumours and things like that. And so that, in addition, cost more time, more time. But I think what came out of it um, was um, hugely inf- uh, valuable information. 
which obviously people can take forward even further. And you co-authored a paper about this work as well, uh, which I'll link in the show notes. A lot of the data is in there too. Yeah. So overall, like, what was the time period from the beginning to the end of this study? I, I think it was at least five years. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. So I mean, by the time you know the you know the initial conversations and the, the selection of the cases, the uploading of all of the data, then you know the processing of the data that panel, the histopathology panel that I was speaking about, mm -hmm. the writing of the paper, the proofs, and then finally being uh, released. I think it was probably about five years. <laughs> wow, okay. Yeah. Uh, this is another one of those things where th this is combined, you know, ophthalmic pathology with molecular pathology, you yeah. know, two of your biggest interests. And is that, like when those opportunities come up, is that exciting to you like, that you, you have to be involved because these are these are two of your biggest interests? I don't necessarily have to be involved, but I, I, I think I do do believe that to understand uh, the pathogenesis of diseases, you really do have to incorporate not only morphology and any immunohistology, but also the molecular uh, pathology to really get a better grip on understanding the whole process. And molecular pathology is just, uh, you know, since... <laughs> Since two, the year 2000, you know, there have just been such incredible advances in molecular pathology, in, in sequencing, um, in the, the costs of doing any sequencing of normal cells and obviously disease cells, uh, including cancer cells. Um, the prices have plummeted and, and therefore have enabled further uh, developments in molecular techniques and which can then be introduced into routine diagnostic care. So I, I do find it fascinating. I really do find it fascinating. And uh, you know, particularly so for example, Charlie Swanton, when he was showing how cancers can evolve. I don't know whether you've seen that paper of his, uh, which was in the um, New England Journal of Medicine, I think. If I, mm, if no, I don't think so. I, I can send it through to you, but you know he looked at uh, kidney cancer and did biopsies from the original primary kidney cancer, say ten biopsies, and then he did a mutational profile of each of those ten different samples, and then uh, he looked at them, looked at metastases, and he um, could map how those metastases had developed uh, and evolved additional mutations as they continued to evolve. And so they, you know, these so-called phylogenetic trees as the cancers continued to mutate and how he sort of applied Darwinian <laughs> concepts to um, how cancers try to continually to evolve like viruses, I guess, as we're seeing in the pandemic at the moment. You know, they continually try to evolve to survive and if you add then the pressure uh, of the uh, selection pressure of chemotherapy or immunotherapy, then you can see certain clones within the cancer being able to survive. And so if we can understand that the whole evolutionary process, and the same with uveal melanoma or cutaneous melanoma, then I think we've got a better chance of playing chess with these cancer cells and trying to uh, outmaneuver them.
and to ultimately kind of come up with cures for all cancer patients. Can you tell me about your time as director of the Northwest Cancer Research Center? This was, I believe, from 2014 to 2019. Uh, how did how did this role come about for you? That was actually rather sudden. Um, so at that time, I was deputy um, deputy head of uh, the University Department of Molecular and Clinical Cancer Medicine. It's a bit of a mouthful. Liverpool had had a what's called a cancer research UK centre, cancer research centre. Unfortunately, it wasn't successful in um, being renewed. And the then Dean of the Faculty of Health and Life Sciences uh, approached me and asked if I could take on the, uh, the role and seek further funding for the, the Cancer Research Centre. And there is a, a local charity here in the northwest of England um, and also Wales called Northwest Cancer Research. And uh, so we approached them and they were very uh, generous um, in wanting to support Liverpool Merseyside having a cancer research centre because, unfortunately, at that time in uh, 2013-14, we were top of the league tables in not football, but uh, rather top of the league tables for uh, lung lung cancer uh, Mm. and the deaths uh, associated with lung cancer in Europe, not just the UK, we're top of the league in terms of Europe. And oh. yeah, so it was it was def- definitely clear that we needed a cancer research centre, which was um, linking fundamental scientists with clinicians to improve translational cancer research and linking in with a clinical trials unit um, so that we could uh, improve uh, patient outcomes particularly in this area. So I, yes, I was, I guess um, I did take on a, a, a very big role. I was coming out of my little sphere and inverted commas of just concentrating on ocular oncology and uh, pathology. I was um, dealing with a whole range of scientific, uh, scientists uh, and various teams addressing different cancer types and uh, looking after a budget uh, promoting PhD students in uh, cancer research and early career researchers. So we're trying to create a pipeline of cancer researchers who would interact then closely with clinical teams. And and I I think we were quite successful. We started off with a relatively small budget. Uh, We were able to leverage additional funds from elsewhere. And uh, after three years, um, the deputy director of the centre, Professor Ian Pryor, and myself, we put in a renewal application to the the charity Northwest Cancer, and they continued our funding until uh, the end of 2019, uh, beginning of 2020. And so I think we were quite successful in, you know, producing this uh, pipeline. And from that um, has emerged what's called the Liverpool Cancer Research Institute. Its establishment was delayed, um, unfortunately, as a result of the COVID pandemic, when probably the same in the US, a lot of funding Mm -hmm. which was uh, was redirected to COVID research. 
And so things were put on pause, but I, uh, finally the, the so-called LCRI was established, uh, I think, a couple of months ago. I'm not involved in that, um, apart from, you know, um, having my own research team within its uh, umbrella. Uh, but I've, um, I've got other roles at the moment, and so I just really can't, uh, couldn't continue in that in that capacity this is the people of pathology podcast with our guest dr sarah copeland we'll be right back LabVine enables improved healthcare by helping labs future-proof, transform careers, and build professional relationships. They do this with tools, solutions, and resources curated from internationally recognized sources. I want to tell you about several new features on LabVine right now. One of them is the Lab Relevance Compass from Jeremy Schubert, who you might remember from episode 65 of this podcast. There's also a webinar that Jeremy did that goes into more detail about the Lab Relevance Compass, which you can find on VineStream. You can also find a couple of new courses on communication skills from 2020 Science, and there are several new content experts as part of the ConfLab as well. You can check out LabVine by following the link in the show notes, and you can sign up absolutely free. And while you're there, you can also listen to the People of Pathology podcast right there on my VineStream channel. Dress a Med has been designing and manufacturing high-quality scrubs since 1980. The prices are affordable, the shipping is very fast, and the scrubs have lots of pockets, which I really like. I actually have several sets of these myself. So check out Dress a Med by using the link in the show notes. You can sign up for their loyalty program for free and earn special offers and discounts. Now back to Dr. Sarah Copeland on the People of Pathology podcast. Would you say then that during your time as director was creating the the pipeline like you mentioned was that kind of your I don't want to say greatest achievement but like most memorable thing that 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 you accomplished during that time? Yes, I I think uh, somebody called it a youth academy youth academy of cancer research okay. uh, cancer researchers and so I enjoyed that I enjoy supporting the. PhD students and the early career researchers, you know, so as soon as they finish their PhD, trying to enable the creation of early uh, junior postdoc positions and, you know, trying to maintain that talent here in Liverpool rather than um, seeking positions elsewhere. And I also really enjoyed public engagement. So uh, we would always, every year, we'd have an annual scientific symposium and we'd intentionally uh, invite final year high school students who were studying science from the local schools to come in and listen to some of the presentations, have tours of the, the science labs, you know, and just shadow and see what the scientists were doing so that they may consider it as a career. And uh, we had a, a couple of displays down in the museums within the centre of Liverpool. And I think one of probably my highlights, which I, I really did enjoy, was when we had the installation in the Tate Gallery and where we focused on the story of Henrietta Lacks and, you know, highlighting the importance of a whole range of different things, but, you know, certainly cervical screening and mm-hmm. uh, things along those lines. So it was it was a, a great time. It was a lot of work. Um, and I, I hope there is, a, uh, there is a legacy which will be continued uh, from uh, through the LCR, LCRI in future years. You mentioned Henrietta Lacks, and 
just recently you you were part of the Royal College of Pathologists book club discussion yeah. about the book, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. Yeah. Um, and I watched, I, I didn't watch it live, but I, I watched the, the video recording of this. And you actually had some of her, I th- think they were her grandchildren uh, as part of the discussion. Yeah. Okay. Is this, now you mentioned the display that focused on her. Is that how you got involved with this? So there are, there are various opportunities within the University of Liverpool for public engagement. And we uh, saw that there was a, a possibility of interacting with the, the Tate Gallery. Uh, which is based here in, uh, in Liverpool. So just a bit of background, Henry Tate uh, originated from Liverpool um, and had a great love of art, and he established, uh, was a philanthropist, and he uh, he established the Tate Gallery in London, but um, there is also a Tate here in Liverpool as well. And so it's down in what's called the Albert Docks, uh, which renovated uh, renovated old warehouses down down on the on the Mersey River. Anyway, so we had funding from the University of Liverpool to have a um a public engagement outreach activity at the Tate where we combine art and science. And so we thought, okay, um, you know, cultured cells can really look very pretty sometimes. It sounds a bit bizarre. Uh, with you know immunofluorescence and things like that, and we were just sort of thinking, oh, well, what what cells could we consider? And then it, we noticed that actually the public engagement activity was going to fall in Black Awareness Week, and then we thought, oh, actually, and and it also fell in the month of Cervical Cancer Awareness Month, and we thought, okay, well, what brings that all together? And then we realised, well, actually, it's the the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks, and then and then one of my uh, engagement team said, "Well, why don't we just contact the Lacks Foundation and see if they'd be interested in coming <laughs> across to Liverpool?" Oh wow! So we, okay. Yeah, so we wrote this email, thinking that we'd get no answer. Like, and next thing we got this reply uh, from Jerry Lacks, who's Henrietta Lacks's granddaughter, mm-hmm. saying that she'd be more than interested in coming across uh, to the UK and being involved in this installation. And uh, so things sort of started falling into place. And also at that time, by coincidence, the the Lord Mayor of Liverpool, Councillor Anna Rosary, was the, uh, the first black female Lord Mayor of Liverpool, and we just thought this is just all too coincidental, and so we invited Anna uh, to come and open the installation with Jerry and David Junior. Jerry brought her husband Tom along, and so we had an art competition uh, where we had the theme of science meeting art. Uh, and and with the, the theme of um, survival, cancer awareness, so that that's how it all came together. And so Jerry, Tom, and uh, David were here for probably four to five days. We showed them around uh, our lab here in uh, in the building that I work in, and uh, we took them across to the Liverpool Women's Hospital where they met all of the oncology team dealing with gynecological cancers there um, and we had 
uh, and then obviously there were two to three days where the installation ran in in the Tate Gallery, and uh, we took them out to dinner, and I also showed them around Liverpool, took them to the Beatles Museum, of course, and um, right, and uh, we just stayed in touch, and so they invited me to join them last year when there was the 100th celebration of Henrietta's uh, birthday. And they also invited Anna Rothery as part of the discussion panel. And then when I became the vice president of communications at the Royal College of Pathologists, I became aware that, you know, they just started this book club where they were going to feature books every two to three months. I suggested that we could do Henrietta Lacks and um, the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks, and we could discuss not only uh, survival cancer, but and you know the, what's been produced from the healer cells, but mm-hmm. you know also all of the the concepts of consent and uh, use of human tissue, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so that's that's how it happened. Yeah, the whole kind of ethics uh, discussion during during that was was very interesting. Yeah, no, I think uh, that I mean there, there's so much to discuss in that book. It's yeah, you could write you mm-hmm. could several essays for people to write if you. Want oh to. yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Okay, I wanted to ask you about the the article that you co-authored for the pathologist. This was just recently, and this was called "From Pot to Print." using 3D scanning and printing to bring back pathology specimens. Yeah. And this kind of ties into something you said earlier, uh, you know, about sort of raising awareness for pathology or getting uh, students more interested in science and, and medicine. It mentions in the article that there's decreased interest in pathology specimen collections. Yeah. So I'm curious, why, why do you think this has happened? Well, I think a number of things. Um, so uh, space. So these old-fashioned formalin fixed 3D uh, uh, pots, pathology pots, mm-hmm. which more often not leak over time, and the specimens themselves become discolored as a result of the formalin. You know, maintaining all these pots, having them in sort of museum-like arrangements that is, is is precious space that, you know, uh, perhaps universities or hospitals no longer want to dedicate to these, these specimens. And uh, then there are also the issues, again, of uh, ethics and, you know, human tissue. You know, were those specimens collected uh, with consent? <laughs> Um, sure. uh, you know, and you know, how long are they allowed to be kept and, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So there are a number of, I guess, issues. And, and then also this, perhaps as they age in the formalin, they're perhaps not all that attractive for medical students to, uh, to view, to, to learn pathology on. Professor Paul McMenamin, uh, he's a, he was a professor of anatomy in Monash University, and um, Paul and I have known each other for a long time, at least 30 years, and uh, because he has an interest in eye, uh, eye pathology and eye research. And uh, we were speaking about how to make 
teaching in anatomy and pathology more interesting for medical students. And so he was in the process of refurbishing a, a new um, building and department in, in Monash University, and he was using all sorts of new, innovative ways of teaching anatomy to students, and that included 3D printing. So the, the students would, you know, um, decide on a part of the body that they wanted to 3D print and organize its printing, and then from that they'd learn all of the structures. And he'd also use, um, I don't know what they call this, sort of like um, the goggles where you do, you know, like uh, as if you were playing a computer game. You'd oh, be, like virtual reality, I think? Yeah, virtual reality. You'd put on the goggles and you'd you'd zoom through the vascular system uh, in whatever organ. And he just made it a lot more interactive and interesting for the medical students because, uh-huh. uh, or, you know, anatomy students, because they it just brought this the science into their into their uh, everyday world because you know we know that you know a lot of us are using iPhones, iPads, tablets, etc. of some sort. And so he was trying to make it more tangible for them in that way. And so he then, you know, threw out the idea, what do you think if we were to do the same with thing with the pathology specimens? And he said, you know, Monash University is thinking of throwing out their collection of however many, 300 pots. And, you know, before they do that, is it worth considering us um, just having a look through them and, you know, getting the best and and then turning them into 3D specimens? And he said, he, um, he approached me and said, look, um, what are you doing during the, the pandemic lockdown? You know, and I said, well... You know, apart from writing up lots of articles, you know, sitting around, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. of course I did still do diagnostic work. I had to do diagnostic work as well. So step by step, they filtered through all of the pots and, um, and then did all the scanning that was required, sent me the images. And then I would, you know, one after the other, I would help them with the descriptions of what pathology was actually demonstrated and, I, I did enjoy the whole project. It took me back to my early years of um, medical school when I was, you know, learning all of that pathology. And then kindly, Paul uh, and the team from Monash, Monash sent me about twenty of the three D printed uh, specimens, and I can now use them here in any displays that um, we may have uh, with the medical students or even with the the public because the, the beauty of these is that they're, they're light and that people can pick them up and just turn them around and look at all angles without getting their fingers, you know, wet or smelly from formalin. Right. You know, in that way they can better visualise, I don't know, a gallstone, or they can better visualize a stenosis of a, one of the coronary arteries or a, a lung cancer. And so they, it, it just makes things more understandable. Yeah, there were two, two really good points in the article. And one, you just mentioned that people can pick up these 3D printed specimens. They're, they're non-toxic. They're not, they haven't touched formalin. So you can, yeah. you can handle them with bare hands. And the, the other thing was it, you can preserve 
um, or it makes it easier to share like rare, rare pathology uh, findings. Yeah, you, exactly. you can just you can print the specimen and you can have many copies of it if you wanted to. I, mm. I, yeah, those those are important. I wonder, like like the 3D technology, I find this really interesting. And I feel like there could be more applications for this in the future. Uh, yeah. Would you agree with that? Definitely. Um, so Paul has been very much involved in also preparing specimens for surgeons in training. So, um, you know, you obviously, neurosurgeons in training, you don't want them to be always learning on the patients. So right. he, he has um, been able to, with some of the 3D printing companies, been able to come up with trainee sort of type wet specimens in verticoms where they would have the differing consistencies of the structures that the surgeons have to go through. So, for example, passing through the skin, passing through the skull, passing through the soft meninges and then into the soft brain, you know, so that they can practice going through with their instruments. Um, and the fact that, you know, they can print these differing textures is really just, I find it fascinating, just uh, incredible. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So I think, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, there's a lot, lot more which can be done with this 3D printing. And uh, I, I know it, I know, um, a company here in Liverpool who have, um, have been involved in 3D printing for prosthetics. Um, you know, oh, for, sure. Mm-hmm. For, you know, children who may have lost legs or, um, arms or, you know, you know, various parts of the body which may, have as a result of injury or trauma have um, have led to them being removed and therefore they can able to produce lighter uh, prosthetics than perhaps the more traditional ones. Okay. Now, the last thing I wanted to ask you about is I'm curious what you think of the state of pathology uh, as a field in the, in the UK. Like here in the US, everybody talks about there's there either there is a shortage or there's going to be a shortage shortage of pathologists in the near future and there's sort of lack of interest from medical students in going into the pathology field is that do you feel like that's the same uh there in the uk it's it's definitely the case there there is uh, already a distinct shortage of uh diagnostic pathologists here in the uk and you know there are in most Pathology departments are at least three to five positions which are constantly unfilled, where the existing staff have to cope with the increasing workload. And I guess uh, it's just uh, there, you know, that's that's in cellular pathology, what we call cellular pathology. But there are some subspecialties where they're even, you know, even more stretched. So this is just also in, in service provision. And then you know, if you combine that with academic pathology, that is really a, a rare subspecialty. Mm-hmm. Because, um, you know, I'm a strong believer that, you know, in any translational research um, and interpretation of any tissue samples within any clinical trial, you need a pathologist. Um, this can't be done really by any anybody else. So we do have to make pathology more interesting and uh, we have to 
we have to ensure that you know medical undergraduates do not just think that um, pathology is just all about dead bodies. If you were to comment, it, it it is a lot more, and that we really interact very closely, uh, and I believe are key uh, to clinical care, um, and uh, that uh, you know there's a lot all of the exciting developments which are going on, you know, in just analyzing tissue biopsies, okay, you know, tiny uh, tiny tissue biopsies, what can be um, squeezed out of them in inverted commas in terms of information, the morphology, immunohistology, the molecular genetics, and and how that then impacts on choice of therapy for the patients and, yes, I guess the personalising or the precision medicine that we all speak about. And right. I just, um, I think we have to try and impress upon uh, medical students that it really is an, an interesting field and and perhaps, perhaps like how Paul has changed his way in, in, in teaching medicine, as teaching pathology, um, we we have to do the same with medical students and make pathologists just more interesting as you know being the the specialty of choice <laughs> rather right. than the one that is you know perhaps only considered by exclusion. Do you think it's important to go even before medical school? Like I know you do a lot of research or a lot of outreach with you know, younger students and things like that. Do you think that's important as well, just to kind of steer people in that direction early on? Yeah, definitely. So that's actually what the College of Pathologists is very good at. Um, it has a lot of interactive programs with um, school pupils. And yes, that, that's exactly the audience that we, we have to target. Mm-hmm. The, um, the school pupils in the last say last three years uh, leading up when when they're sort of making their choices which direction they may be going and you know is biomedical science with uh, a view of going towards pathology or is it you know medicine with a view of going into pathology I guess when most school pupils think of going into medicine they think of oh, I'm going to become a surgeon or I'm going to become a I'm going to become a Big physician, lung physician, or whatever, but you know, you have to really also at that stage make them think, Oh, I'd really like to go into pathology and solve these tissue puzzles because that's uh, that's what it's all about, really. I definitely agree. This has been a really interesting conversation. There's so many other things that we could have talked about because you've done a lot of it a lot of amazing things. And so I kind of had to narrow down the discussion, but uh, this has been, I really appreciate your time today. Uh, Dr. Sarah Copeland, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Dennis. Great big thank you to Dr. Sarah Copeland. Next week, I'll be talking with Oli Brian Maliari, who is a medical laboratory scientist in the Philippines. Here's a quick preview of that. And then I'll be back with some final thoughts on this episode. So for you, what was your experience with discovering medical technology? How, how did you discover the field? Well, Dennis, it may sound a cliche, but uh, same story with me. Actually, me being a part of the medical laboratory science community is quite an accident and a beautiful accident, if I may add. 
uh, when I was in high school, I did not have any idea of what medical laboratory science was until I entered my first year college. Actually, the school that I went to, I originally enrolled to another course and that was a political science because uh, back then I wanted to be a part of the uh, legal community and uh, so the rest is history and okay. um, on the last minute during the enrollment period while well, I was queuing on the line for the political science uh, course immediately my attention got caught by the medical laboratory science profession uh, or a medical laboratory science line and it was shorter it was quite a shorter line compared to the med uh, to the political science uh, uh, enrollment line and so by accident I just so happened to make a last minute decision without even consulting my parents to shift all of a sudden to the medical laboratory science uh, course. So this was another wide-ranging conversation that I really enjoyed and like I said close to the end there there were so many other things that we could have talked about and I think much of it involves using new technologies to not only advance the research in the field and advance our knowledge about disease, but also to get students interested in pathology, whether medical students or even younger students like we talked about. And this is certainly true about the 3D printing project that we talked about, as well as her work with the Tate Museum and the Cancer Genome Atlas. I'll have links in the show notes to everything we talked about today, and even a few things that we didn't get to. Uh, don't forget, you can follow this show on Twitter at People of Path or connect with me on LinkedIn, or you can just go to peopleofpathology.com and all the links are right there. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others and together let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of the other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.